Wait, honey, hang on. So that's how Star Trek explains all the humanoids, huh? Welcome to The Spinal Frontier, a podcast where we speculate as to why Star Trek aliens are the way they are. I'm Kelly, she, her. And I'm Aaron, they, them. Today we're talking about the subject of one of my mom's favorite episodes of Star Trek, The Next Generation, Season 6, Episode 20, The Chase. At the top of the episode, I want to be clear with how we're using race and species going forward since I was pretty much using them interchangeably last time, and I know better. We're going to use species for the aliens that are indigenous to a particular planet like humans, Kelpians, Klingons, and the like. Race is used frequently in Star Trek to identify different humanoids, but race is cultural, and it's not a helpful term to describe biological traits. It implies that there are physical characteristics that are genetically attached to people being grouped by their country of origin or religion, which is not correct at all. And we'll try to get a little bit into why today and also in episode four. Okay, Aaron, do you want to give our friends the rundown of what this episode is about? This episode begins with one of Captain Picard's old mentors arrives with a special mission, which is take a year off from being captain of the Enterprise to come with me on an archaeological expedition. And if you know Captain Picard, you know his background is in addition to being a Starfleet captain, he is an archaeologist. I think by training, I think he's written papers. Picard rebuffs uh, his mentor because who would leave the Enterprise behind. And so his mentor goes on the mission on his own, but is very quickly waylaid by an attacking ship and the Enterprise has to come to his rescue, but they're too late. The mentor is... Exploded. Yeah, his ship is exploded. He's injured uh, gravely and with his dying breath, he's able to send Picard off on this adventure to figure out what his research was and why it was so important. Throughout the episode, there's some intrigue with uh, some rival factions, like the, the Klingons and the Cardassians all want a piece of this research. And what, what it is, is that DNA fragments from all across the quadrant fit together based on their protein compatibility. They form a pattern that appears to be part of a computer program. These DNA fragments were incorporated into the earliest forms of life at each of these locations about 4 billion years ago. The computer program points to a nearly dead planet with evidence that it used to be inhabited. A lichen sample from the planet provides the final piece of the puzzle and activates a recorded message. The recording explains that an ancestor species seeded the primordial oceans of many different planets in the galaxy with DNA pre-programmed to select for a specific form, humanoid. The episode kind of uses this as an explanation for why so many Star Trek aliens are humanoid, because they all share a common ancestor. They call it the humanoid progenitor, and pro meaning first, and genitor meaning kind of the thing that makes the other thing. So it's the humanoid species that came first. Oh, I did not know the etymology there. Very cool. There you go. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of terms that we're going to be using if we're talking about evolution, because we all kind of know about evolution, but I just wanted to make sure we all have the same basic terminology here. Because today's going to be a little bit different because we're telling you about the biology first and then how it applies to the trek instead of getting excited about the trek and then finding biological examples. So first off, just DNA. DNA is chains of amino acids in our cells that contain all of the information about how to build our bodies. It, it's the roadmap to tell 
cells to make these different proteins in these different structures that turns into us. And the way your DNA is structured determines the physical traits that you have, hair color, eye color, height, weight, bone structure, facial muscles, all kinds of things. Everything that makes you you, DNA has a hand in. This is also what gets passed on between generations, and that's kind of the vehicle of evolution. Because evolution is the change in the proportions of different versions of the same trait, so different flavors of the same thing, like different hair colors or different eye colors that are inherited. These traits are inherited, and these get passed down over time. And evolution specifically measures the changes because copying DNA doesn't always happen perfectly. And so you have these little tiny changes in the order of these amino acids that kind of map out everything. It's not always a bad thing if the resulting trait is just as good or if not more useful, right, than a pre-mutation trait. That's, that's how species become better adapted to their environment. Like say I'm a Frankie and I have a genetic mutation that makes a second pair of ears grow over my first pair of ears and that helps me hear better. Uh, if that doesn't prevent me from reproducing, either by making me very unattractive or causing me to die, uh, the second ear gene will be passed along unto the next generation. So when we think about mutations, mutation sounds like a bad thing, but it is not necessarily a bad thing. So I, I just wanted to make that pretty clear. But I don't want to talk this whole time because Aaron actually prepared this episode and is very excited about the real theory behind the chase. So I would love for you to talk about that more. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the real theory behind the chase, or the hypothesis, I should say, which is that life began off of the planet, off of Earth, and was carried here by a meteor or a comet that collided with Earth in its early history. That concept is called panspermia. In most of its forms, is considered kind of a fringe theory, but in more recent years, the scientific community has been able to recreate the conditions on a comet and has managed to see that the kind of building blocks of life can form under those circumstances. So not life itself forming on the comet, but some of those organic materials, uh, amino acids, for instance, would form on a comet or an asteroid that then collides with Earth and brings them here. Because really amino acids are just kind of special proteins. They're not, they're not anything particularly exotic. Right. But if some of that material was pre-programmed by aliens in Star Trek to carry a specific programming, then that's kind of the idea behind the chase. Did you know, I was also looking into this a little bit, Francis Crick, notorious thief of Rosalind Franklin's lab notes, I'm team Rosalind, but Francis Crick actually had a bit of a theory that had to do with natural panspermia. His thought was maybe aliens could see another planet with their own DNA, and that was a whole kerfuffle. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a kerfuffle. That's um, That's... A bit of a controversial thing to say, and one of the reasons why it's controversial is because it doesn't actually answer the question of how exactly life arose from nothing. Um, it just kind of kicks it down the line to uh, an extraterrestrial origin. Something I, I found really neat about this episode is that the time frame they give, 4 billion years, lines up fairly closely with a period of time in Earth's own history, 
3.95 billion years ago, there was a period called the late heavy bombardment where Earth and its moon were just bombarded by asteroids and comets, which were thick in the solar system as it was still forming. So the reason we think this is because lunar samples from the Apollo missions, uh, the way we've dated those samples, kind of shows that, yeah, the moon and Earth were bombarded by the same stuff about, about that long ago. It does line up very closely with the chase, but I do want to say that that 0.05 billion years difference is still about 200 million years. <laughs> that's, that's three times the time between us and the dinosaurs. Just casual, a casually short amount of time. I'm just going to be generous to the crew of the Enterprise and assume they rounded up. Now, I find all of this stuff really interesting, but it's there's a lot to learn about it, uh, more than we can cover in the short time we have here. So we've included some links in the show notes that will explain these comments and some of their rebuttals in more detail in case you want to learn more. You know, I'm really excited to put the trek and the biology finally together, but uh, let's take a second to hear a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Garrick's Clothers, located on Deep Space Nine's promenade. If you're looking for the best jeans in the quadrant or any other article of clothing that looks like a 90s couch cushion, <laughs> Garrick's got you covered with a variety of styles suitable for every occasion. <laughs> okay, let's put this all together. When we were watching this, I know they mentioned... 19 different species of humanoids came from the progenitor humanoid. And obviously it's uh, humans, Klingons, Cardassians, and Romulans are all involved in the actual episode. But what other species of humanoids do we think come from the progenitor species? I think it's really easy to say Vulcans because Vulcans and Romulans are closely related. What else do you think? So if we're going with all humanoid species, because the progenitor species was apparently very advanced and potentially was able to do this all over the galaxy, so maybe the Kazon from Voyager. What makes you think the Kazon? They walk on two legs. Okay, they all walk on two legs. I thought that was the central premise of the episode is the reason so many people walk around on two legs is because they're all like biologically programmed to end up there through their evolutionary... Okay. 19 species of humanoids definitely come from this, but we definitely know more than 19 species of humanoids on this show. So what I'm hearing is they convergently evolved, convergent evolution meaning developing the same trait into species that are totally not related, like birds and bats can both fly, they have wings that cause flight, but they are not very closely related at all. So there are definitely convergent evolutions of a humanoid form, which is also fascinating in its own right. Honestly, I think that that's a lot more likely than some kind of like genetic pre-programming. Yeah, no, it makes a lot more sense yeah. than the the natural panspermia, but here we are. I have a hot take. Okay. Um, I think Odo's species came from them. Really? Why do you think that? Because the humanoid progenitor has a big, smooth, flat face that doesn't have any features on it at all, which also makes me bonkers. Because that means that all of the humanoids that came from them do not resemble them at all in the face and head area. They should theoretically have some things in common with the common ancestor. Okay, but also, if, if the DNA was included in the kind of seed of life, here on Earth, then 
obviously like we walk around on two legs and have a humanoid body plan because that's what the progenitors had. But what about all of the other life that came from that seed? What about trees and octopuses and fish and bears? As we all know, octopuses are aliens. <laughs> uh, so, so the saying goes. Okay, so like I guess my point was like you don't have to look exactly like the progenitor because those features like while guided by this DNA encoding were selected for under different circumstances, right? Yeah, it just implies to me that there's a lot of mutation as they course through deep space to get to the planets that they got to based on the featureless face of this progenitor. I don't think there's any way of knowing conclusively. This was a fault with the episode two is because it was the early 90s and they hadn't they hadn't done the full human genome yet. So genomics was a really new field when they were writing this stuff. It was very cutting edge. When I was watching it, I was like, well, why don't they have the full genome of every single species of humanoid that's on that ship already? But I don't think the writers would have thought of that in the <laughs> 90s. So I guess yeah. we have to forgive them now. <laughs> they they definitely didn't think of that. And um, as the show and its spinoffs go on, there's definitely more references to having the genomes of each crew member on file. Like in Voyager, that's a thing that I think... With the doctor, that happens fairly frequently is he can just pull up their their genome and take a look at it. So we were in fifth grade. We're, we're 33 and almost 34 now. So we were in fifth grade in 1998 when they first published the first genome. I remember reading about it in our Time for Kids magazine mm. in fifth grade. <laughs> Shout out to Ms. Burse, wherever you are. I don't know. That, that is my major thought, thinking about who comes from the progenitor and how do we know. I guess okay. we just don't know. Well, I'd say the Andorians look close enough to like humans and Klingons and, and whatnot that they probably count. No, they're the <laughs> I'm going to say no because all of the other humanoids that come from the progenitor don't have such extreme sensory organs on top of their heads. Okay. All right. That's a that's an interesting point. If you look back in, in the Star Trek medical made-up literature, they insinuate that they're insectoid, like they have some insect-like. The Andorians do? Yes, the Andorians do. So they're not as genetically similar to humans and Romulans, or Terrans, I guess. Yeah. Earth is referred to as Terra. That's in the Namir universe specifically. Oops. Yeah, We're going to cut this out then. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can tell you who's definitely not on the list is the Gorn because they're big scaly lizard men with compound eyes and nobody else is like that except for maybe the Cardassians, but they're not that extreme. And the Jem'Hadar. And the Jem'Hadar. Well, though, okay, so the Jem'Hadar were explicitly designed by the founders. And that's a whole different conversation. Touche. When it comes right down to it, in TOS and TNG up until this episode, most of the major players that we talk about are here in the episode already. There are many references to like proto vulcanoids like the Mentakins that are technically related to Romulans and Vulcans in some way. So I wouldn't count them as part of the 19 either. Well, if they are somehow genetically related, then they technically would be. Okay, so we can count the Mentakins then. Do we count Remans? Romulans have this, this really intense brow ridge that Vulcans don't have, but you know who does have it is Remans. So if there was interspecies hybridization, 
then they're closely enough related they can get that brow ridge into there. Ooh, maybe like how some humans have more Neanderthal DNA than others? Yeah, kind of. Well, good thing we're talking about hybridization next. Um, I'm really excited to talk about that actually because some of our favorite Star Trek characters are in fact hybrids of two humanoid species. And now I remember what I was going to talk about before. What traits do we think the progenitor species has and, and who has more derived traits than others? So we know that a lot of the species that we definitely know come from the progenitor, like the Klingons, have a lot of redundant organs, like a lot of redundant organs. Humans have redundant organs even, like we have two kidneys, we have two lungs. I'm curious about what's going on internally, like what the differences in organs might be. I was going to say that if, if we share, like everyone shares in common, like obviously all parties involved walk on two legs, but also they all have forward-facing eyes, mm-hmm. which says to me that they're all predators. And because they have this unique method of locomotion, which is basically just controlled falling forward, <laughs> they're all pursue predators. Yeah, That is an interesting observation. So anyway, that's what sets off in my brain when I'm thinking about the evolution of Star Trek humanoids in general. I really enjoy the fact that we're examining the different traits that all of these derived species have come up with on their own different planets that got seeded with this ancient DNA, apparently. One other thing I'd like to note about this episode, uh, so they got this lichen DNA. And there's no such thing as lichen DNA because what a lichen is, is this bizarre complex organism that is fungi, algae, and bacteria, and maybe some other things all living together as a single organism in some combination, but there's no one cell type, there's no one organism type. So getting DNA from the lichen means that they either got the DNA from the fungus or the alga or the bacterium, and that was part of the puzzle. But there's no such thing as, like, lichen DNA. Do you have anything else to say about this? No, I, th- I think that's it. Okay. I just want to make sure you didn't have a grand conclusion because you worked so hard on this episode. Nope. <laughs> All right. That's it on the evolution talk for now. Uh, before we go, I have a correction and an update from episode two. So, barrel-eye fish don't have a clear skull, per se, but they do definitely have a dome of clear flesh where you can see their huge eyes just chilling in there. It bothered me that I said it that way before, and I just wanted to clarify that like the eyes are still outside of the skull, but they're inside of the head. Also, my precious bit, What the Hell is Dal, is going to be on a bit of a hiatus until Star Trek Prodigy is back in January, because of course, they take a break the minute I come up with a good bit. Oh well. Next time, we're going to talk about the wild ways, hybrids of species, mix and match. So please come back and join us for that. If you liked this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app and feel free to rate us five stars and leave us a review so other people can find us. And if you didn't like it, uh, please don't. If you're not already, please follow us on Instagram at Spinal Frontier Pod and on Twitter at Spinal Frontier. If you're not on the socials, you can reach us at SpinalFrontierPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Okay, honey, you can press play.